Good evening to you all. <clears throat> I was uh, in the process of teaching a retreat when Sharon Salzberg uh, sent me and some other people a short video. And this short video was taken by one of the organizers of a very particular retreat that was held at BCBS this year. This uh, retreat got no publicity. It was kind of uh, on the down low, as they say. And when I watched the video, I found... uh, myself really moved by what I was seeing because it was a video of participants who had gathered for this particular retreat who were survivors of gun violence in the United States. So there were people there from Parkland, there were people there from Sandy Hook, there were people from uh, the Pulse nightclub, there were people there from the Philadelphia Synagogue and other places. So the video was like a series of mostly still shots. And it was set to uh, a backdrop of music. And the, the recurrent theme in the music was we could be the healing, we could be the flower in the gun. And those of you who are of the older group here probably remember here in the States during the war in Vietnam period when uh, protesters against the war sometimes approached uh, National Guardsmen who were called out to contain the protests and who were carrying guns and went up to them and took a flower and put it right in the barrel of their gun. And as I I was watching this, I was aware of the fact that this particular retreat was being held with the utmost care and tenderness by the greater uh, BCBS and IMS community. I mean, as soon as it became known that this retreat was going to be going on there, people came forward to volunteer and to help in every possible way to help, help support the retreat in the container. And I think at that retreat, there was healing that took place. There was something about people who had had such a difficult and traumatic experience gathering together in this place of safety, in this place of peace, to support each other, to hear about beautiful things, to hear about metta, to hear about the teachings of the Buddha, there was healing. And I also thought to myself, it's a lot harder to put it back together than it is to break it up, right? It's a lot easier to create harm. It's a lot easier to deconstruct. It's a lot easier to destroy. It doesn't take any particular intelligence or 
focus or, right? None of the higher attributes that human beings can have are needed in order to cause damage and harm. But in order to move upstream, in order to develop ourselves, in order to be the flower in the gun, in order to help put it back together, that's a whole other thing. That requires bhavana, that requires development of the heart and mind. So tonight I wanted to do a talk on sila for a couple of reasons. One is to follow on what Greg offered last night when he was talking about dana. But the other one, other thing, is I wanted to take the opportunity to locate this particular quality of mind within the Buddha's teachings and talk in a really pragmatic way about why it's so important and why it really is a cornerstone. So Greg mentioned last night that sometimes the arc of the Buddha's teachings are described as dana or generosity, sila, moral training, and bhavana, uh, development of the heart and mind. Another way they're sometimes described is as sila, morality, samadhi, meditative development, including concentration, and panya, or wisdom. But either, whether you uh, take the first formulation or the second, sila is separately there and it's broken out, and it's because it's so important. If we think of bhavana as development of the heart-mind directly, we can think of sila as this process of training the, the heart and mind to refrain from doing particular things that are hurtful, that are harmful to ourselves and others. So if we were going to look at how this fit into the Buddhist system, the first uh, steps on the Eightfold Path, of course, are the two orienting principles, right? You have wise view and then you have wise intention. And the next three things are related to sila. Wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And there's an intersection of these with the five lay precepts. There's there's pretty much an overlap with the exception that with the precepts, refrain, re, restraint from the use of intoxicants is specifically mentioned. And um, step five of the Eightfold Path, wise livelihood, is not directly mentioned in the precepts. But if you, you put the five precepts and the sila steps of the Eightfold Path, there's a good amount of overlay. And it's for obvious reasons. So the gradual training, the gradual training for most people, actually starts with taking and practicing the precepts. So 
let's talk a little bit about how to understand ethical conduct and sila as skillful means. You've probably heard this phrase, skillful means, skillful means, skillful means. Um, It's pretty commonly used in Buddhism. And its general meaning is actions and choices and views that are conducive to movement towards freedom and liberation. That's a pretty good shorthand for it. So as you can see, this is a, a definition that focuses on what works, and it's pragmatic, it's not moralistic. And the path is not one of condemnation, but it's one that's practical. So the question always is, what's actually going on here? And given that and what the goal is, what's the best way to proceed in furtherance to the goal? And I think this is really important when we take up this topic as as in Western culture, and we are in Western culture, I understand that... Um, There are a lot of different Western cultures, but for our generic purposes, let's say, for many of our moderns, there's a cultural overlay when we talk about morality. So this can seem like it's rather boring and stifling. You know, we like our freedom and Uh, Those of us who are a bit older may have had childhood experiences, kind of like the finger-waving and shaming variety that can cause us to kind of like turn away from that kind of stuff. For some of you who are younger, it's quite possible that you may have never had any or very few explicit moral teachings uh, in your own family. But... You know, mostly when we come to practice, we want to go right to the good stuff, which is generally held to be some kind of meditative practice that we hope can can fix us or help us in some particular way or to help us get rid of uh, mental or physical or emotional pain. So we're not so interested necessarily in hearing about constraints or discipline or renunciation which is part of the territory that we're actually discussing here. But the Buddha's path is often described as an uphill one, which goes against our human tendencies to seek pleasure as the goal and the measure of all things. And, you know, at some point in our career as human beings, most of us notice that we actually can't indulge every impulse that we have. And this is often a big wah-wah. <laughs> so I had the experience a while back of, of visiting uh, my niece and her husband and her parents and their, the two young children of the niece and her husband. So the older of these children was walking and doing some talking and you know, he could throw a ball and he could kick a soccer ball and, you know, he had knew some song fragments and uh, he gave good cuddles. So he was, he's quite a guy. He was also still teething. So apparently there was something satisfying about taking a big chomp on Oma. <laughs> <laughs> 
his grandmother. So there he was, you know, being held by Oma, all, all cuddled up there, couldn't be, you know, more content except for the arising impulse, so the intention, arising impulse and intention um, to soothe those gums on something soft. And so he would, you know, kind of turn around and go right on her shoulder, you know. So she'd get a painful nip, and then her reaction to that is uh, she would immediately put him down on the floor. You know, not drop him or anything, but (laughs) put him down on the floor firmly, decisively, right? So then our toddler would not like that loss of that cozy connection and would become very unhappy and cry, right? So one morning when we were there, I woke up and there was apparently another teething episode had happened. And this one was with grandfather. So, so grandpa responded decisively also, but for him it was with spontaneous creativity. So he invented a song on the very, on the very spot to illustrate the moral lesson. So it went like this. Don't use teeth. It's not right. Teeth are sharp. And very hard. Teeth are strong, but it's always wrong. So do not bite. It's not right. Don't use teeth. <laughs> so then the rest of the adults, when we got together, you know, having, having heard this musical accompaniment, you know, so we, we all got together and we did this as a chorus a few times. <laughs> You know, to the amusement of the toddler. But I think he actually got the point. Like, you know, you can't just bite Oma and Grandpa or anybody else because it hurts. And, you know, in the story you can see this early moral lesson in impulse control and empathy provided by caring adults. So... There's an understanding there that limit setting is in the interest of the child's greater interest and happiness. Yes, chomping feels good at the time. Many things feel good at the time, but it's a kind of feel good, that's a problem. So you see in the story the first reason for teaching and practicing sila, which is moral restraint keeps us from harming ourselves and others. And because we're social creatures, what goes around in families and societies comes around. So if we continue to bite, so to speak, people get upset and reject us. And if we model violence and ill will or selfishness and unreliability in our families, we'll live with that on an intimate level. So... We need each other to survive as human beings, but for communities to be happy and successful, we need to practice non-harming because otherwise there's conflict and mistrust and danger and violence. I, I once had an acquaintance who had a reputation for being very capable and having a raging temper at work. 
So very competent. And then there was this whole other side. So in that particular setting, people often deferred to her, which had the upside in that she got her way. But it also caused her to be avoided and distrusted by other people. But the real downside of uh, dominating people in this way showed up when she had a son who became an adolescent. So at the, he became explosive and physically menacing in his expression and threatening to the point where she had to call the police repeatedly. So we learn from what we've seen modeled, especially when we're young. So if we see an adult just you know let it fly uh, with their unskillful states, there's a kind of planting the seeds of problems in their children. You know that maxim hurt people, hurt people, has a lot of wisdom in it. So we have to learn better and behave better in order to keep from passing along harm. A second reason for practicing sila relates to an understanding of karma. So if you think about the structure of the Eightfold Path, you might remember that the second step is wise intention that talks about compassion and goodwill and renunciation. And these three are are direct pointers that show the whole compass of practice and how it's oriented. So everything that we do in practice is an implementation of or informed by these three attitudinal values. So by the time you get to the explicit parts of the Eightfold Path, the three sila steps, we already know where the path is going. We already know it's going to non-harming and beyond that. And this understanding really gets filled out with these three steps, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, which address the behavioral specifics that call for our attention and call for our commitment to moral restraint. And they're pointers to areas that need special care because they're karmically potent. So this idea of karmic potency is a second motivation in behaving ethically. Those of you who remember what mundane, wise view is, remember that it makes this big distinction between wholesome and unwholesome. It says this is really important because unwholesome actions that flow from greed, aversion, and delusion cause conditions and create causes that are experienced as suffering, both in the present and later on. And actions that flow from wholesome motivations and intentions plant the seeds for future arisings that lead to happiness and human flourishing. So the Buddha was very clear in pointing out that there is fruit and the result of good and bad actions. Our actions bring results, and we ourselves are the heirs of what we've done. A third reason 
to practice sila relates to our main activity here. So let's take a little bit of a close-up of sila and how it relates to meditation practice. If one is routinely unethical, meaning that you have weak sila, the conditions for dharma practice will be difficult. Since generosity, goodwill, sila, compassion, and renunciation haven't been cultivated on the behavioral level, meaning the level of actions, external actions, they're probably not common in the mind stream. This means that one would not be drawn to spiritual practice generally, which asks for an upstream effort against the tide of our own organic biological preferences. So the deeper the ethical ditch, the harder and more painful it is to get traction. This is not to say that any human being lacks the potential to awaken. Everybody has this seed potentiality. How difficult it's going to be to awaken for any one being has something to do with the level of sila. When the the Buddha gets to the next steps, after the three sila steps, you're into wise effort. And I talked about that, seems only hours ago, but I know it was last week. You're talking about wise effort. And here again, the Buddha talks about undercutting or blocking the unwholesome and arousing and developing the wholesome. So it's a reminder, this distinction between wholesome and unwholesome track introduced in mundane wise view, step one, tracks all the way through the path of practice. The practice of sila really clarifies behaviorally this important discernment and asks for moral restraint. Then wise effort advises us to to block and let go of what's not skillful and to sustain and cultivate what is. Then if you look at the remaining two steps of the, the path, wise mindfulness and wise concentration, These are what allow us to develop the mind to the point that we can really do this cultivation. So if sila is well developed, you've got a tremendous practice asset. The mind is supported in settling more easily and the conscience is clear. That helps support the development of samadhi, uh, also called concentration or unification of mind. And we know if concentration or samadhi is strong, it makes it much more difficult for the hindrances to practice to arise. In some cases, it can completely, if temporarily, close the door on the hindrances. So if you can imagine the door of the, on the hindrances being closed, that's easy cruising, right? The mindfulness would just just be there, clear knowing, clear knowing, clear knowing, clear, clear knowing, every moment of mindfulness being a, a strong cause and con- 
condition for the arising of future moments of mindfulness. One way to, to, to think about some of the positive impact of sila on meditation practice is that it creates freedom from remorse which supports calm and self-respect. If, if the mind has self-respect, if you approve of yourself because you, you respect your, your sila, then it's actually easier to find self-support in times of difficulty because you're willing to give it to yourself. In a certain kind of way, you could say you approve of yourself. So one can reflect on the wholesome actions of body, speech, and a mind that, that boosts faith, sadha. Sadha, or faith, is a very interesting quality of mind. So it's very closely aligned with confidence. There's an aspect of this that could be translated as self-confidence, meaning beings have done this, I can do it too. And a kind of courage that lets you place your heart upon the enterprise uh, of working directly in meditation to open understanding and develop the heart-mind. This uh, quality of faith, sadha, is the lead horse for the development and opening of the five spiritual faculties because it fuels the effort needed to establish mindfulness. Right. So first there's faith, then there's effort or virya, which is needed to establish mindfulness. Then concentration arises, concentration being the platform from which liberative wisdom is seen or developed. So this is all stemming back or all intertwined with moral restraint. So remember, do not bite. So it's possible to actually front load supportive conditions for our own awakening by exercising basic moral restraint. One way to think of sila is even when the mindfulness is not so strong, even when there may be hindrances there, if you can remember the precepts, if you can remember the, the, the three parts of sila and conform your behavior to them, you're not going to run into the ditch. You know, it's a little bit like saying, even if you forget everything else, if you remember what these things are and you have a commitment to, to these practices, when the impulse to do something that clearly... Uh, transgresses these ethical commitments come comes up maybe a little bulb goes off in your mind and goes I don't want to do that it's a little bit like a rumble strip you know those things on the highway when you're falling asleep or you know you start hearing the thunk a thunk a thunk a thunk a thunk oh you go oh yeah gotta get back let me go back let me get in the middle 
They can remind you when you're about ready to run off. So it's foundational to the entire path and necessary for the success of the other trainings. This is what the Buddha said to a monk who asked for the training in a nutshell. Buddha's nutshell version uh, seemingly depended on who he was talking to. So he would give them the particular nutshell that they particularly needed at the time. But anyway, this guy asked for the training in a nutshell. And so he said to him, first, establish yourself in the starting point of wholesome states, that is, purified moral discipline and right view. Purified moral discipline. Okay, that's sila. Right right view. Okay. Uh, wise view, first step. Then, when your moral discipline is purified and your view straight, you should practice the four foundations of mindfulness. Then, when your moral discipline is purified and your view straight, you should practice the four foundations of mindfulness. So sila gets you started on the developmental path, and then you have a platform for purification of mind through the practices of concentration and insight. By closing the door to actions that lead to remorse, regret, and guilt, the mind more easily settles, it's more clear, and it's easier to practice. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says, uh, at the karmic level, The observance of sila ensures harmony with the cosmic laws of karma, hence favorable results in the course of future movement through the round of repeated birth and death. So important now and apparently important later. You will see, or maybe not. Okay. So what are the cornerstone practices of sila? So let's do a brief tour here and fill in some of the the detail. So here I'll do a little drop-down menu for each one, one of these. So the first is right speech. So it's interesting that this comes first, and it's also reiterated in the precepts, right? So meaning, abstaining from lying, divisive speech, abusive speech, idle chatter, which seems to mean, you know, running your mouth aimlessly. So Greg mentioned last night that Saka, truthfulness, is one of the paramis. The Buddha found that lying is particularly unskillful. So one who would deliberately lie, the Buddha said, would do anything. I think that's a really interesting statement. One who would deliberately lie would do anything. And the Buddha himself, uh, the story goes, did many unskillful things in his many lives. He did just about every bad thing that a being could do with one exception. Uh, He never lied. He never lied. So 
it's really not possible to be post-truth and be on the path. So wanting to know what is true so can we can come into alignment with that is the path. Wanting to know what's true so we can come into alignment with it is the path. So if we were going to look at right speech from a positive perspective, we could say um, using words that are true, that one again, friendly and benevolent, pleasant and gentle, meaningful and useful. And you know for yourself, if, if you are a person who uh, is strong in this area, you know somebody who is strong in this area, Wise speech can be very powerful. It can heal divisions. It can bring communities together. Likewise, unwise speech can destroy lives, communities, and countries. You know, leaders have ignited hatred with divisive speech and set the world on fire. So our mouths can cause many problems. And of course, practicing wise speech in our digital polarized world is a real challenge, right? This is like a huge area of practice for all of us right now. Uh, It's possible to hide in anonymity and vent primal impulses with our identity cloaked. So people will say things online that they would never say in person to someone or in circumstances where they're identifiable. But in doing so, we contribute to polluting the water well from which we all must drink. So snark is a quick release, and like many quick releases, it is prone to hangover. So let's take a look at the second of these, uh, wise action. This addresses how we live in our daily life. So negatively phrased, abstain from taking life, stealing, and sexual misconduct. And it's interesting, wise wise action doesn't uh, directly address intoxicants, but the way it's usually interpreted is that the lay precept of refraining from intoxicants causing heedlessness is read into this section. So some of you may think you've got some wiggle room there. <laughs> but so positively uh, phrased, knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the training to uh, protect life, take only what's freely given to me, protect relationships and avoid sexual misconduct, speak truthfully and kindly, protect the clarity of my mind through avoiding intoxicants. The last of these is right livelihood. So this is a section that is not present directly in the five lay precepts. So this incorporates the idea of ahimsa, of non-harming or harmlessness towards other beings and how we make a living or make income. And it states that you shouldn't earn a living by doing things that harm others. 
So phrased negatively, it talks about refraining from trading in arms and lethal weapons, intoxicants, poisons, killing animals, cheating, also business and human beings like slave trading and prostitution, dishonest means of gaining wealth like scheming, persuading, hinting, and belittling. So it seems like at this point, half the economy is (laughs) ruled out. (laughs) So maybe a, a positive way to phrase that would be work and earn a living in ways that express loving kindness, compassion, respect, and support for living beings. You know, the, the Buddha uh, talks about wealth and the accumulation of, of wealth, and he makes a distinction between righteous wealth righteously gained and wealth unrighteously gained or uh, used in ways that cause harm. So he, the Buddha himself is not a fan of hoarding money or accumulating large fortunes and not distributing them for the welfare of others. So if you consider that one way to describe the practice path has dana at the beginning of it, generosity at the beginning of it, you're getting a big clue right there about what the Buddha might think about uh, being stingy and miserly. And in fact, there, there was one, uh, one uh, person that he ran across who had accumulated a lot of wealth, and this particular individual had, had this resource, but he, w- he just couldn't stand to spend it. He couldn't stand to give it away. And the Buddha said that that situation was actually a result of unwholesome karma. That that was not uh, a fortunate circumstance for that person to be in. So, you know, if we're really going to practice sila, if we're really going to take a, undertake this training and um, look at this aspect of our lives, we really have to move beyond moralism and kind of rule-bound automatism. So using what mindfulness and clear perception we have and a commitment to the growth of our own wisdom and compassion and loving-kindness, we have to grapple with a lot of dilemmas. What does that mean to refrain from sexual misconduct? What does, it, what does it mean to practice wise speech in an affirmative kind of way if you're a, a member of a community or a member of a, a family where there's, there's conflict going on? Does it mean you should just, like, don't say anything if you can't say something nice? I don't think so. It should, this shouldn't be over, overlaid with uh, ideas of goody-goodiness, if you know what I mean, right? Because we're, 
It's a pointing to the functionality of certain behaviors and the dysfunctionality of other behaviors along that axis of understanding what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Would it be more skillful to speak up forcefully in a situation of harm, even if there was some anger there when you did the speaking? Or would it be better to not speak if there's any anger in it? So, you know, these are adult questions. You can see that they're wisdom questions. You have to take a, take a, a big picture, a, a wise view, an overview perspective in some of these situations. So, sampajana, that particular form of mindfulness that allows us to, to have a strategic uh, perspective on what's going on and choose wisely according to our understanding of all the causes and conditions that are present in a circumstance. So this is adult stuff here. And you can see that the application of these kinds of principles to daily life really requires intelligent engagement, intelligent engagement. And that supports the the growth of our own grounded wisdom as we deepen our ability to see causation and choose to act in a way that supports our deepest aspirations. And just to get to the, the last of the reasons to practice sila, it's joy. It's happiness. So, you know, the Buddha obviously had a very refined mind as well as a very powerful mind in it. He, he said that uh, when, when somebody asked him, you know, kind of like, what makes you happy? What do you enjoy? He said that he frequently reflected on his own harmlessness. That, and that, that brought him joy to realize that there was no being anywhere that had anything to fear from him. So this is very much in accord to how the, the precepts are spoken of, which is as pristine, traditional, ancient gifts which give immeasurable immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. So there's a, a beauty to this moral restraint to developing the willingness to shape our own behavior by becoming conscious of our actions of body and speech. So... The flower in the gun is a beautiful thing. Uh, the no gun and no need for the flower in the gun, that's even better. May we 
undertake a commitment to practicing those things which support our own awakening and offer to all beings immeasurable protection. May all beings be safe and free from harm and danger. May the benefit of this practice be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of all beings without exception.